When we understand that Jesus and, and the apostles, well, they, they, have, they have just as convictional a doctrine of Scripture as, say, Paul or Peter, but we only discover it when we read, say, the Gospels within their own canonical horizon, even, uh, I would say, especially within their covenant, what I would call their covenantal context. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine an associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I'm Sam Beerig, and I serve here at Spurgeon College alongside Dr. Barrett. And today we put uh, your usual host, uh, Dr. Barrett, on the other side of the table to discuss his new book uh, with IVP, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel. First off, Thank you for your work, brother. Uh, after reading and processing through your contribution here, I, um, I expect this is going to be a great help to the Church of Jesus Christ and the scholars um, who are wrestling uh, through questions of, yeah, just the impact of typology, divine authorial intent, uh, census plenier, and, and how they ought to, um, yeah, work with their interpretational methods. And so thank you for your labors. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just to start off, uh, uh, what were some of the underlying impulses and, and origins uh, that drove you to write this particular book of, of all contributions. Yeah, you know, this this book in particular was one of the most difficult books that I've written so far. Uh, about uh, a third of the way through, I was practically banging my head against the wall thinking, I, this is not going well. This The, the writing wasn't happening. <laughs> I thought, I, I know I'm missing something here. And so it proved to be really difficult. What I realized about uh, about halfway through and, and had to rewrite sections of the book was that I was approaching the book quite wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and this actually comes back to what I argue right out of the gate in the book. As a an evangelical Christian, uh, I, many may feel this way. Oftentimes when you know I'm having a, an evangelistic conversation, maybe a pastoral con conversation with a church member, and scripture comes up. It's authority, it's reliability, it's inspiration, it's clarity, and so on. I immediately go to the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Uh, in those uh, time-tested words, he says to Timothy that uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And that usually is my starting point uh, in those conversations. But as I was thinking through Jesus in particular and the Gospels, I, I realized I can't approach Jesus and the Gospels in the same way, in the same manner. Now, that doesn't mean they have a different understanding of Scripture than Paul. I argue in the book they actually have the same understanding of Scripture in the canon, but the way that they approach it, uh, in part due to the type of genre that the Gospels are just inherently, and the way that Jesus is coming on the scene as the fulfillment of the of everything uh, Scripture speaks of in the Old Testament, well, this changes sort of the rules of the game. And so I realized that 
almost from the start and had to back up and think, okay, if if I'm going to actually write a book about Jesus and the Gospels and how they approach the Scriptures, well, it might be good to actually take their approach. Right. (laughs) It sounds obvious, but we're so trained. uh, We're so trained as evangelicals to think through a Pauline lens that we sometimes miss what Jesus and the Gospels are saying, or we sort of force them into, you know, uh, the grid of the epistles. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, you you get into that right at the very beginning of your book, um, and and there's almost this sense of our methods uh, having expectations to to find this overt statement about inspiration, and that comes primarily from Pauline, you know, understanding. So so how does your approach, and of course it does, um, how does your approach undergird and not undermine uh, an evangelical doctrine of scripture? Yes, that's a really good question because on first glance it might seem like well. Are we going to undermine our belief in Scripture? I actually argue the the exact opposite. Uh, when we understand that Jesus and, and the apostles, well, they they have they have just as convictional a doctrine of Scripture as say Paul or Peter, but we only discover it when we read say the Gospels within their own canonical horizon. Even uh, I would say, especially within their covenant, what I would call their covenantal context. And so the nature of Scripture that we see from Jesus and the Gospels, well, it presupposes that, okay, we may not be having it, we may not be seeing a doctrinal reflection here in any type of explicit manner, but what we are seeing is a very powerful manifestation of the same doctrine on the lips of Jesus or the gospel writers, but within the Old Testament's own uh, promise fulfillment pattern. It, even it's, when, we'll get to this later when we talk about typology, but even it's typological tapestry. And not only that, but I argue this later in my book, we see it in not just Jesus's words, but his actions, the way he fulfills the covenant by his life, death, and resurrection. That obedience to the scriptures says volumes about what the scriptures are, what he believes the scriptures are to begin with. That's right. Um, okay, let, let's talk, uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about the organic unity uh, of the whole canon for a, for a moment. Um, as evangelicals, uh, we of course just check off the doctrinal box called inspiration, um, and we're affirming all of scripture is breathed out by God. However, um, as you know, uh, the way many scholars approach uh, the canon and, and form their interpretational methods, their hermeneutic, uh, it inherently reflects um, that they uh, functionally ignore um, inspiration and divine authorial intent. So um, why do you make so much uh, in your book here of, of divine authorial intent? This is a touchy subject because as evangelical Christians, of course, of course, of course, we we check that box, uh, we, we, and we do it because we believe it. Uh, we, we believe Scripture is inspired, plenary, verbal inspiration is crucial. However, I've noticed, and I'm not by any means the first to notice this, uh, many others have pointed this out, functionally, the way we actually approach the text, the way we go about biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, we sometimes act as if that's not true. Uh, the way I put this in the book is we may check the inspiration box, but when we start to interpret the canon from beginning to end, we are like a type of deist. Uh, so we will say on the one hand, yes, we, you know, I believe 
all scripture is inspired by God. But then the way we actually approach the text as if it's atomized and, you know, books or authors are, you know, completely segregated from one another or, or as if there's not a, a, uni, uh, a unified whole to, to the canon. Well, we begin to then step back from that confessional statement and act as if, well, God may have somehow miraculously inspired the text, but he more or less just kind of wiped his hands clean and took a step back and then all of the rest of uh, history just kind of progresses on its own. I argue in the book that we cannot do that. Uh, not only does inspiration mean that uh, the divine author, he's not only the, the the main actor on this stage of history, but he's also the, the script writer. Well, if we truly believe that, then his divine authorial intent, his fingerprints, we could say, are found across the entire canon. And, and remember, you know, as, as 21st century Christians, we're spoiled, right? We have the, the, the whole Bible, the whole canon in front of us. That wasn't the case for most of history as they, the, whether it's, uh, you know, the prophets or all the way back to Moses or the, the believers at, at Pentecost, they are seeing these events unravel over a long, long uh, space and time period. Well, God is actively involved across all of history, making sure that what he promised of old is coming true in his own son, Jesus Christ. I guess if I had to put this in a nutshell, I would say it this way. Not only is, say, history unified because its architect is God, is working out his plan of redemption in history, but the canon itself is unified because its divine scriptwriter, that's God, yeah. has breathed out his redemptive covenantal word through his human authors. Now, that doesn't undermine diversity. Uh, there's the, uh, many, many authors of Scripture, so they, there's a diversity here we don't want to undermine. And their context, their, his, their historical context is diverse as well. Uh, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, there is one divine author who is spoken in and through them and even their own context to give us a unified word to us, his people. And so in, in this sense, we have a, a, a timeless document for all people and for all times. That's super helpful. I, I actually think that that, um, as I've processed through reading, uh, you know, your contribution here, I think that's maybe the most important thing that I found um, that you're arguing there. Uh, okay, so to understand the type of biblical theology that you're really after, I think it's kind of helpful to take a test case here. You do a sort of um, uh, Johann Gabler versus uh, Gerhardus Voss um, deal here, and, and Gabler, of course, lived in the 18th century and has, has been called the father of biblical theology uh, by many, and, and Voss lived in the late 19th and early 20th century is a biblical theologian of old Princeton. Um, what's the difference between these two? Uh, what do you draw out here in the book uh, between these two figures? Well, there's a huge, huge, huge difference between these two. Yeah, he gets that title, the father of biblical theology, and it I think it's a bit misleading at times. I understand what people are saying when, when they they label him that, but we have to ask the question, well, what kind of biblical theology is he the father of? Yeah. And I argue it's not the kind of biblical theology that that we can follow as evangelical Christians. Right. Uh, take for this is this is a quote from him from Gabler, uh, coming from one of his most famous lectures. He says, We must investigate what in the sayings of the apostle is truly divine and what 
perchance is merely human. And, and then he goes on and he says, the, the biblical theologian, so here he's saying, this is my task, this is the task of the biblical theologian, is to decide whether all the opinions of the apostles of every type and sort altogether are truly divine, or rather whether some of them, which have no bearing on salvation, were left to their own ingenuity. That is a, that is a shocking, shocking statement. I, I think that type of approach to biblical theology, where you as a biblical theologian are really the, the ultimate judge determining what is and what is not scripture, what is divine and what is not, that stems far more from a, an enlightenment rationalism than it does from maybe the best of um, the Christian heritage, even before his day. Now, he's living, um, he, he's delivering this lecture in 1787. This is the 18th century. If we skip ahead, uh, we skip ahead to, uh, you know, the, the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, we meet another biblical theologian, Gerhardus Voss. He's, he's, uh, it, he, he's living during um, what we would call today old Princetonian, Princeton Seminary. You think of individuals like uh, Warfield and Hodge and so many others through the decades that were involved in this school. Voss is one of them. And Voss puts forward a very, very different understanding of biblical theology. First of all, he, when he looks at someone like Gabler, he asks questions like, well, where is Christ in this definition of biblical theology or this task of the biblical theologian? It, it doesn't seem like Christ is anywhere. Uh, and where's the divine author across the entire canon? Does someone like Gabler have have a place uh, for the divine author, not just at, in in a particular text, but across the canon as a whole? And Voss comes to the conclusion: Well, that approach to biblical theology can't answer yes to those questions. And so Voss says, "Well, we need a very different definition of biblical theology." I'll, this is um, let me read to you. This is a, a short definition, uh, but he says this: biblical theology rightly defined, is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic progress of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity. Now, I know that's a mouthful. I mean, I, I can't even say it, but uh, notice some of the, the distinctive traits of that definition. Notice his stress, for example, on this progress being organic and even supernatural in character. And he stresses history, but never to the neglect of the divine author himself working out this history according to his own supernatural revelation. So this contrast between these two biblical theologians, I think, is telling. Uh, on the one hand, someone like Gabler, he takes the biblical theologian's commitment to history, I think he takes it to an extreme. Now, we have to be careful of this. We, we do want to take the historical context, the background, ancient New background, background, uh, on and on and on, the grammar as well. I mean, all of this is incredibly important. However, coming out of the Enlightenment period, there has been an overemphasis on the human author to such a degree that you end up with the type of biblical theology, or, or maybe not explicit, explicitly, maybe you're assuming it in the way you interpret the text, you're, you're ending up with a type of biblical theology that is more in line with someone like Gabler than Voss. Voss, on the other hand, uh, he believes 
well, this that's a that's a rationalistic approach, and we have to be on we have to be careful about going that direction as if we can somehow neutralize ourselves. Uh, no, Voss says, by contrast, Scripture, if it's a revelation, if it if it is revelatory, well, that changes the rules of the game. Uh, it, it gives us a different type of authority that we're working with as we interpret history. Uh, Voss, I think, where he's at his best here is when he talks about Christ and the covenants, uh, because at this point, Voss says, "Well, if Scripture is uh, if Scripture is inspired by God, and if God's authorial intent is marks it from beginning to end, well, then it shouldn't surprise us that from Old Testament to New Testament we see this progression that." has its climax in Christ himself. And Voss is, you know, he's not shy to point out that this uh, comes through the covenants, and we see it especially with Christ, who brings and cuts the new covenant by his own blood. And so Voss says we can't, we can't uh, divorce, say, Old Testament from New Testament or one part of the canon from another part of the canon. No, he says Christ is actually the goal of the covenant, and we see the canon come to its fulfillment in him. Yeah, I think it's so helpful that you're drawing this line between between Gabler and, and Voss and, and how they kind of diverge. Uh, even in scholarship, you still see it today. Difficulties with definitions and um, just whatever he was doing, Gabler, it, it, it wasn't conscientious of inspiration. So um, if divine authorial intent uh, is infused throughout the canon from, from start to finish, and, and of course it is, uh, then we are justified uh, in talking not just about history, um, but redemptive history. So if, if so, uh, what place should Christ have in our approach to history and, and canon? At the end of the day, we have to say, as, as much as we want to be careful to do justice to uh, each individual author, say, of the Old Testament, um, we have to, to conclude at the end of the day, if we really believe this is Christian scripture, if we really believe it's inspired, if we really believe that divine authorial intent marks it from beginning to end, we have to come to the conclusion, I think, that Christ is not just another puzzle piece, but he is actually the goal. We, In terms of hermeneutics, we might even call him, as one, uh, one biblical scholar has, we might even call him the Christological clamp of the canon. Mm. Now, I have we have to you know nuance that a bit. I'm not trying to say that the only revelation um, that we have in Scripture is only about Christ, as if uh, there's no such thing as general revelation, for example. Or that uh, we're certainly not saying, you know, that every you know verse in the Old Testament is explicitly saying something about Christ. We're, we're not saying any of that. But what we are saying is that the canon from beginning to end is is moving. It is it's it's alive. It's living, yeah. because the because not just the human author, but the divine author has the prerogative here to be working out his plan of salvation through his covenants so that it culminates in Jesus Christ himself. We'll talk about typology later, but we see this with something like typology, where he is planting seeds, so to speak, types and shadows throughout the, the Old Testament canon so that they blossom and, and, and flower and, and come to full maturity when Christ comes on the scene and announces the kingdom is now at hand, uh, and, and so much more. I, I guess the point here is when we are reading and thinking and and discussing history, we are justified as Christians to call it redemptive history. Right. 
that may be you know a phrase we're not used to saying maybe in in our church setting but i think it's one it's it's a phrase that we should introduce churchgoers to that we're not just a when we talk about history and, and what the canon says about history we're not just approaching this as as secularists no this is this is god working out his plan of salvation through his covenants and it comes to culmination in christ and so it's all about redemption great uh so following on the hills uh, which i think is very helpful for even yet yeah, to push um pastors to 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 work this um, phrase of redemptive history into the way that their people think and, and speak about. Um, so why, on, on those heels, uh, why is the concept of covenant then uh, so instrumental to the way God reveals himself in and through uh, his canon particularly? Yeah, covenant is quite crucial, isn't it? Uh, when you open the Old Testament scriptures, it's not long at all until you see uh God establishing covenants with his people. You see it with Abraham. Uh, I would argue you see it as as early as Genesis when God puts down certain stipulations, covenant stipulations with Adam, uh, this this test that he is undergoing. And then, of course, Paul, and and I would argue even Jesus himself assumes this in his own life as, uh, as Jesus then comes as the second Adam. But whether it's whether it's Adam, whether it's Abraham, or whether it's Moses, we see this at Sinai, don't we? Uh, God reveals His plan, but He does it by means of covenants. Now, this is fascinating. Now, there's so much here. I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg. I'm afraid, because the covenants, on the one hand, are saving covenants. Salvation is bound up in these very covenants, and at the same time, the covenants themselves they are revealing to us something about God himself and something about what he wants to say about how his redemptive plan is going to come true. So they're both, they have a, a salvific nature and they are also, they also have, the, the, I would say they are instrumental in revelation itself. Uh, one way I, I like to put this to my students is I say uh, revelation so often in the canon comes through redemption and redemption through revelation, so that when God speaks, he then acts, and then he He doesn't just leave us to interpret it for himself for ourselves. He then follows up on it and interprets his, his redemptive acts for us. Well, all of this, we see, you know, what's the how how does all of this occur in scripture? Through covenants. And so uh, you know, we can get into all the types of debates over, you know, what are the covenants exactly and 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 how much continuity and discontinuity. But in, sometimes in those debates, I think we've overlooked this basic principle that we can't actually understand the canon and its fulfillment in Christ unless we understand how that canon relates to the covenants and how Christ himself brings those covenants to fulfillment. Yeah, I think it's it's really helpful just as I was reading and, and, and trying to assimilate what your argument is, is that typology or covenant is, it is the divine author who's driving this all the way through and he's articulating it in his scriptures. Uh, okay, so let's get into a little bit of a controversial uh, topic here, as though we haven't already um, hit, hit some things, poking people in the eye for, for their hermeneutical method here. But so you argue uh, that the canon's unity is not driven by pragmatics, which is kind of leading the day uh, in, in scholarship in many ways. Um, but you're arguing that it's characterized by a unity of substance. Um, so books of the Bible then don't don't just happen to fit together conceptually, uh, but the canon as a whole is characterized by an intrinsic unity. 
uh, due to its inspiration. Um, and if that is true, which of course it is, you believe um, we must affirm census plenier. You get into that, you make much of it. Uh, so what is census plenier and why is it so essential to affirming not just human authors, but a single divine author? Yes, yeah, so this is usually the point in the conversation, right, where uh, evangelicals start to wiggle around their seats and get really nervous. Uh, are you saying that there is, you know, something more beyond what the human author might understand in his immediate context? And I'm saying, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I think it is. Now, of course, there's ha there's a lot of work, and people have written entire books on census planning and and you know how to properly nuance it, and so we need to to make sure we do that. But I think sometimes we're a little bit too quick to get to all those nuances, uh, when we first need to just maybe sit tight and, and actually just absorb it for, for a minute. Uh, you know, one, one individual who is maybe more or less famous for his own under, you know, articulation of census planning is, is Robert Brown. Mm. Uh, he, he defines it this way. He says, there's an additional deeper meaning intended by God, but not clearly intended by the human author, which is seen to exist in the words of a biblical text or group of texts or even a whole book when they are studied in the light of further revelation or development in the understanding of revelation. Now, in my own book, I go on to, to elaborate and to unpack that and, and even to, to add to it a little bit. Uh, but, I, but I think the basic principle that Brown is after here is a good one. And I think it's actually one that's key to everything we've said so far. If there's a divine author, if there's divine authorial intent, if there's an actual intrinsic unity to the canon, then census plenier, it, it's, it makes sense. It, it has to be there to actually connect the dots, so to speak, from what's happening in the Old Testament to the New Testament or to the coming of Christ. So I, I guess I would put it this way. Although with a text, although a text is situated, say, at a, at a particular point in history, at the same time, it reaches beyond that historical parameter. Now, why? Right. Well, because of the progressive nature of revelation itself. Right. So as the canon builds and God's redemptive story unfolds, what was before we could say dim, well, now it shines really bright, and brighter and brighter and brighter the closer you get to Christ. Uh, so this, this fuller meaning, uh, it tends to blossom, it tends to mature, with the closer you get to Israel's, to the coming, to the advent of Israel's Messiah. So that those things in the old covenants that were foreshadowed through the, the human author's words, they are then amplified as it then progresses and reaches its fulfillment in Christ, just as the divine author planned, envisioned, strategized. And so, you know, you take the prophets, for example, the, the meaning of a prophetic passage, especially if there's typology involved, a type, uh, well, if that's the case, well, it, it, that means that the, at that point, it then becomes enlarged and expanded. It, some will use the, the language of escalating. It escalates beyond the human author's immediate understanding uh, due to the divine author's knowledge understanding, and I would say even his eschatological intent. He knows far more. We don't want to uh, circumscribe uh, his authorial intent to the limitations of, say, what the human author may or may not know in that moment. Right. And I, I think, yeah, you're, you're right to, to push on this because it would just seem, um, even based on the doctrine of omniscience, I mean, the human author is not going to be able to 
operate at the um, elevation of the you know divine author. So, so yeah, it would seem that census plenier necessitates typology, and you've you've hinted at that. Uh, why is typology so crucial uh, for approaching the whole canon um, as Christian scripture, particularly? You know, typology is is quite essential. I, I am more the more I study it. I mean, it's a, a deep, deep well. I think you could. To, to all those aspiring biblical theologians out there uh, or systematic theologians, uh, this is an area that you could spend the rest of your life in and uh, you, would, you would not exhaust it, the mystery of it. Typology uh, is so diverse in the canon. It can refer to an individual. It can refer to an event. It can re- even refer to a, a type of theme. Uh, I mean, it might sound the the phrase typology might sound a bit foreign, but actually, I think most Christians assume it uh, in the way they read the Bible. You, when you look at uh, say the sacrificial system, and then you turn to Hebrews uh, to to see Christ as the end of all sacrifices and the fulfillment, the the sacrifice himself. Well, that's typology at work there. Or when you see Christ as the the, the greater prophet, priest, or king. Uh, that too is typology at work. And we could go on. I mean, it, it, in, in one sense, it, it is quite endless. One of my favorite examples of typology, though, of course, comes uh, when you look at John 3.14, or if you want to skip ahead to Paul in Romans 5. Here, I would argue we see, uh, uh, if we go all the way back to Genesis with Adam, we see uh, the biblical authors and Jesus himself, by his own actions, connecting the dots from who Adam is to who Jesus Christ is. So Adam comes and fails miserably, but Christ comes as a second Adam, a last Adam, one who uh, succeeds where Adam fails. Uh, and this makes much sense of the ministry of Christ. So that uh, I often like to ask my kids, why, why, why is it that, that Jesus lived his whole life? Why didn't Jesus just come and he was born and then he just suddenly died? And, mm-hmm. and uh, my kids were like, we, we think through this together. And I'm like, well, why is that? That seems a little strange. That would be kind of odd if he just get well. And so we start talking about, well, what, what is the life of Christ? And why did he need to live in perfect obedience to the law to fulfill all righteousness? And who's he doing that? Well, who's he doing that for? Well, all these types of questions in the ministry of Jesus and the way Jesus then enacts that ministry through his own baptism, him going into the wilderness. This is all Old Testament language, by the way, being driven into the wilderness, the uh, you know taking the people up to the mountain and then feeding them like Moses. All of this is typological language that's coming through, whether it's Adam or Moses or David. David has a huge presence in the Gospels. Uh, in in the language it uses of Christ. Well, all of this is assuming there is a type, anti-type structure that frames the entire canon uh, and from beginning to end so that it's it's not detached from history. I think this is sometimes what people fear. Oh, we're going to you know get into to some crazy hermeneutics here. No, it's not detached from history. It actually moves through history. All that to say, uh, I guess you could put it this way. I don't think the New Testament writers are crazy. Uh, when they are interpreting the Old Testament, it's not like, oh, you know, they're inspired so they can get away with these crazy hermeneutical gymnastics. No, 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 no. What the New Testament writers are doing is they are reading the canon as Christians, uh, as God himself intended them to read the canon in light of Christ, who is the antitype of so many types before him. That's great. Uh, you you provide a, an example that I want you to maybe just speak to in the book, um, but it's on the covenant God makes with Moses and Israel uh, at Sinai. So you say there that God's revelation, his word inscripturated, 
um, is the very constitution of the covenant. So the canon is inherent in the covenant itself. Um, what are you doing there? What do you mean by that and using that example? You know, it's really fascinating when you look at uh, Sinai in particular and the way that, that God is initiating this covenant with Israel as just as they are you know, coming out of Egypt, uh, there are a lot of parallels here to what we see in ancient Near Eastern literature in which you have uh, an, overlord, an, an overlord and his vassals um, compacting, agreeing, contracting, whatever word you want to use, uh, coming together as the, as the overlord then enters into this pact with these vassals um, most likely on his terms, and he and there is a a type of covenant that's then stipulated, agreed to, and then it's binding. It's absolutely binding in the ancient Near Eastern context, even among uh, pagan uh, you know p- pagan uh, nations, they would see this as a sacred moment, even in which the gods, whoever those gods may be, would then come and and bear witness and and testify to the covenant so that then if, if, if there was a breach of that covenant, that that party would be held responsible. Now, when we come to the covenant God makes with Moses at Sinai, it's not an, an, an exact parallel to you know, these, these ancient Near Eastern uh, covenants. I, I would say one huge difference is that God himself is the overlord here so that when he is coming in, into this covenant with, the, with his people, it is as personal as it gets. Uh, in fact, as we learn in the New Testament, uh, he's going to even send his own son to to shed his own blood to fulfill the covenant himself. Now, all that to say, when we when we are looking at say Sinai, we need to recognize that yes, the this word that is that is given to Moses, these are meant uh, on the tablets. These are meant to be. Um, uh, the very constitution of the covenant. These these aren't just. Uh, this isn't just a dead letter, that sort of thing. I, I think today in the 21st century, you know, when we think about you know Exodus, we think, oh, those are the Ten Commandments, and and we we tend to approach them in a very dry uh, sense. Well, actually, when we go back to the narrative itself, what we discover is that uh, most likely it was it was given to Moses on two tablets for both representing both parties of the covenant. And it's a living, a living document, right. so that if Israel uh, breaks this covenant, uh, it, it's actually Israel is violating the very word that God Himself has given. It, the text even says He wrote it with His own finger, so right. to speak. Right. And then it's a sacred moment, right? You don't have to, you know, summon all these other, you know, pagan deities. Uh, in, in contrast. God himself is the one present as he's writing this word for his people. And then his word is even put in a sacred place in and next to the ark. Well, all, all of this narrative, I mean, there's so much we could go on about, but all of this narr- narrative, it, it tells us that there was a close, even a direct correlation between the covenant on the one hand and the, the document itself so that the authority of the covenant was enclosed within the authority of those tablets. Uh, we could even say they are the covenant treaties uh, for the parties involved in that covenant. And, and this, is, this is so important because when we talk about, say, the authority of the canon, 
this isn't some uh, this isn't something that we ha- we have to you know reach to or you know it's not like a stretch. Actually, authority. If this is the case, then authority resides in the covenant and the canon itself, and ultimately in the one who made that covenant canon, which is which is of course God. That's good. Well, it it would seem then, um, just based on what you're saying there, that that it would follow uh, that there's a a canon consciousness, um, if, if you could put it that way, so that it, as you're progressing from, say, like Moses uh, to the prophets, the biblical authors are conscientious um, of how the canon is culminating and peaking towards uh, fulfillment, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this is something that we we sometimes miss. I know I do is if I'm reading my Bible too quickly, especially the Old Testament, which as Christians today, we tend to be less familiar with. But if we just slow down and and pay more careful attention, what we discover is, yeah, the closer we get to Christ, the more the the biblical authors, the human authors, are drawing connections themselves. Mm-hmm. They right. it, it's not as if they are just God plops them down, you know, say a prophet, for example, plops them down out of context in their own day and just says, you know, say this word. Well, certainly God is, you know, and sometimes in a very direct way, giving them a word. But You'll notice that when the, the the oracles of the prophets are given, they are making sometimes direct, sometimes indirect allusions to say the Torah that has come before them, on which Israel is entirely dependent. So yes, there is a a, a can, what we could call a canon consciousness to the canon itself, and we see it uh, as early as you know First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. We certainly see it in the the prophetic literature. We see it in in the Psalms, the Psalter, the wisdom literature. Uh, And then by the time we get to the Gospels, the the Gospel writers aren't just, uh, you know, observing Christ out of nowhere. They are doing so within the, the context of this canon consciousness. Now, they struggle at it. They certainly struggle at it, as do we. But uh, as Jesus opens their eyes, and you think of you know some of the things that they say in the book of Acts, uh, they begin to see Christ in far more places than they, they did before, and they almost rebuke themselves for being so blind. Well, all of this assumes there is a canon consciousness, so that by the time you get to the gospel writers, they are operating from their scriptures, which are the Old Testament itself, and they don't think it's bogus, for example, to see Christ there. Good. Uh, let's touch on uh, just Christology. Um, so you, you say the prophets um, in in the book you call them prosecutors of the covenant treaty uh, that they declare that an, a new covenant is yet to come. Then Christ arrives, uh, announcing not only that the kingdom is at hand, but that His own blood cuts that covenant. Um, uh, when the gospels uh, gospel writers are emphasizing this, um, that Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant promises. What what does that mean for the canon itself? How does that affect that? Yes, the prophets when they arrive on the scene, uh, you know, we tend to think of of the prophets as you know speaking this this word of God, and uh, we we sometimes think, well, of course the people are going to believe. Actually, if you know, if we look at the history of Israel, we should know better, right? More often than not, the people don't believe. They they have hard hearts, stiff necks, as Stephen will even point out when he's being martyred. And uh, what that means is that the prophetic role is not just one of delivering the Word of God, but based on everything we just said about canon and covenant, they are actually 
prosecutors of that covenantal word. And it's tragic. It's it's even it's sad even uh, because they are bearing witness that the covenant's been broken, that Israel is re- remaining in its its uh, its hard hearted direction. And so by the time you get through the prophets, what what is it that they want you to feel? Well, on the one hand, they want you to feel the heaviness of this tragedy. But on the other hand, they also, and you see, you start to see glimmers of hope throughout their writings. They also want you to feel this pressing question, which is who is going to be the one Mm. to redeem God's covenant word? Are God's covenant promises going to fall flat? Right. Which some struggled with and, and, and some in Israel said, yeah, this, it's all, it's all lost. Or as the prophets will will help the people understand or are God's covenant, uh, covenant promises going to be fulfilled by God himself? Because clearly no one in Israel is going to do it. And the answer, of course, is yes. And when Christ comes on the scene, we see him uh, announcing the kingdom of God, cutting the covenant, the new covenant, that is, by his own blood and by his words and his actions, fulfilling uh, those roles as prophet, priest, and king. Okay, that's great. Um, well, so in Canon, Covenant, and Christology, um, what what are you wanting to say uh, to Old Testament and New Testament scholars who may be reticent uh, to adopt your views concerning census plenier or divine authorial intent? How how would you like them to even modify what your thesis is? How are, how ought they modify their interpretational methods, their hermeneutic? I think there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Now, I will be the first to say, uh, and and I say this very humbly, I am I am uh, not uh, an expert on every Old Testament issue, every New Testament issue. Um, I am a theologian at heart uh, who very much uh, drinks in the the waters of biblical theology and enjoys them. At the same time, though, I think something has to change in our hermeneutical approach. Uh, it, it, at its core, if we, as we go as we go about interpreting the text, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament or the canon as a whole, our our whole approach to biblical theology, if we are going about those disciplines as if the canon is segregated, the pieces of the canon are segregated, as if uh, we we can't understand, um, we look at say the apostles or Christ and, and we see their interpretation of the Old Testament as bogus and out of this world, I think. If we are coming to those types of conclusions, we have a problem. Uh, we are not treating the canon uh, in the fashion that God himself intended. Well, let's uh, end on a, a doxological note. Um, uh, as you as you studied through, did your research, what was one of the most disheartening discoveries you found um, in your studies? What what brought you the greatest delight and joy in, in Jesus? Probably uh, having the opportunity to see how Jesus Himself understood the canon. Uh, it, it can when when I first started to write and approach the book and, and do all the research necessary, it, it was an overwhelming task. Until I realized, well, uh, Jesus actually is is uh, he's actually in my corner here, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. because I don't need to to somehow uh, create a, a a new hermeneutical theory. Uh, Jesus himself is is showing us both by his words and his actions how to read and understand the Old Testament scriptures and even showing us what they are. And so that was so comforting to me. 
I think on a very practical level to churchgoers, I would say uh, as you're approaching the Bible, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel uh, as if you don't understand. It's, it's, a, it's a foreign world, a strange world. And I would just say uh, in your, your interpretation and your, ba- your uh, daily Bible reading, make sure you are coming back to Christ, to the Gospels, um, to, to understand, well, how is Jesus and the gospel writers, how do they understand the canon that's come before them? And how does Jesus understand himself as the fulfillment of the covenants and all the covenant promises God has made? I think that if you do that, it's not that uh, the task is not going to feel overwhelming still, but I think you will find uh, that Christ himself is the key to understanding how uh, revelation itself progresses from beginning to end. That's helpful. Well, um, as we draw to a close here, I want uh, just the audience to know that there will be an, a part two uh, of this interview where Dr. Barrett will explore further and more particularly the gospel. So uh, specifically how, how we should move from Christology to canon uh, to confirm our doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. And one of the aspects um, of your contribution, Dr. Barrett, that, that I believe uh, canon, covenant, and Christology is making here is that um, you don't leave your thesis, your theory level um, alone, you, but you work it out uh, and specifically in, in an extended way with both Matthew and John, of course, touching on uh, Luke and Mark. So I'm looking forward to the second uh, installment of the interview. And again, uh, go out and get Canon, Covenant, and Christology. It's published with IVP uh, and it is out now. So go get it. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.